welcome to The Hook Podcast. I'm your host, Jen, and this is an hour where we talk about business, marketing, and motivation for those of you who are independent contractors, self-employed, creative people. If you are the captain of your own pirate ship, this is the podcast for you. So I want to start out with bragging. I got two letters this week, emails. This isn't the dark ages. And whenever I get emails asking me questions to read on air, I always feel very famous. <laughs> I feel it really adds to my already raging self-importance that somebody cares about what I think. Um, my special guest co- guest star this week is my squeaky desk chair that I have been... You ever have a honeydew list that is like going on two years? I've had this chair exactly one year. It has traveled across the country with me. I love this chair, but it has squeaked since the moment I bought it. And nobody wants me on the business end of a can of WD-40. Disasters will happen. So I ask the handy dandy man of the house, hey, could you fix my squeaky chair? You know, I do podcasts. Nobody wants to hear my rocking around in my chair. And is it fixed? No, but I digress. Anyway, (laughs) I'm a joy. I am. She is beauty. She is grace. She is a joy. Um, Anyway, I got two emails uh, asking some questions. So we're going to open the proverbial mailbag. I'm very excited. I feel like Dear Abby. And I want to be one of those people that gives good advice, but we all know people who give the best advice are the biggest messes. So I don't know. Do as I do as I say, not as I do. (laughs) Um, I didn't expect to get mail so soon. Like this is our third episode so soon into the podcast. So I haven't like worked out the privacy thing. So for the time being, until I iron out the privacy thing, I don't want anybody's laundry to get aired, so to speak. So I'm going to use ridiculous fake names. Like, we're going to go this week, we're going to go with the characters of the Hamburgers Play Place. So this first letter comes from Grimace. <laughs> because I can't say Jane because there's I know Janes and Janes might be listening to this and they're going to think I'm talking about them and then it gets weird. And No, Grimace. We don't know any Grimace. We know people that are like Grimace, but we don't know actual people named Grimace. So first letter. Hi, Jen. I just wanted to know what you feel about ageism and sexism in the office. I am in my 20s, a fresh undergrad, and I'm in the marketing department, and I feel like I am often dismissed, and my age comes up more than my abilities. How would you combat that? Thanks so much. Love the podcast, Grimace. Well, Grimace. Ageism and sexism is never going away in our generation. Thank you for listening. Bye. Uh, Especially when you are in a capacity that not very many people understand. So women have had the right to vote now for 100 years, and we are now two generations as Americans into dual income households. Okay, June Cleaver, God rest her soul. It's not the norm anymore. However... Because we are still in a very patriarchal society, the norms, the defaults of even younger people are going to kick back into a very uh, male-dominated thing. This even happens with my, quote, woke, very liberal male friends and even partner. Uh, They default 
to that 1950s sensibility because that's how we've been raised, especially if you've been raised in a very conservative upbringing and perhaps a religious upbringing, patriarchal views are just there. It doesn't necessarily mean they're chauvinists. It just means that that is the default. Now, I too am in marketing and I get called the marketing girl. It doesn't matter what city I'm in. It doesn't matter what office I'm in. I get called the marketing girl at least five times a week. It gets my hackles up. I feel you there. And I also experience ageism because, I mean, not to humble brag or anything, I present very young because I have a baby face. And up until about five years ago, I legitimately looked 15. So I get being on the young end of things. And quite frankly, nobody understands what marketing is unless you do marketing. Um, I would have to say 90% of the people I interact with across all industries really truly believe that marketing is making a meme and posting it on Facebook. That is a huge hurdle to overcome because you are always, always, always justifying your value to the business because there is a disconnect of what marketing actually is and you have a lot of competition. In one of the uh, avenues I work in, I think once a year we have to fight for our supper and really convey the value of what we're doing to keep our position because they are inundated day in and day out by agencies who say they can do it better. So I feel you. On the other side of that, you have to decide how much it's going to bother you. If you just kind of say the nature of the beast and move on with your life, it's not going to have as much power over you, and there are ways to combat that. I use humor. Uh, I'm a natural-born troll, and I have a very dry sense of humor. And you have to remember that when it comes from a place of, on a psychological basis, it comes from a place of leveling. A lot of times, if you are going into a meeting, say you're going into a marketing meeting, People are afraid of what they don't know, and nobody wants to look like an idiot. So a lot of times, insecurities will bubble up because they might be the professional on the other end of the table or view themselves as a senior professional, and they don't want to look like they don't know anything. So they'll do subtle leveling tactics, such as bringing up your age. Oh, I'm so much older than you. You just like you can't possibly be on my level because I'm like 20 years older than you. Or you'll be called the marketing girl. It's not intentional. It's an insecurity thing because I just don't know. Um, so in my in my life, I use like subtle humor. Um, I, I get a lot of you know I'm so much older than you. Just it's like you don't know that. <laughs> I'll just say like you don't know that, and they're like, oh, and then they start like backtracking really hard, and it's just like yeah. Um, I'm in my 40s and I have three children and what I've been doing this a very long time. Like, <laughs> you don't ever want to be combative about it. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Be professional, know your stuff, be strong, be aggressive even. Never back down from your, you know, your qualifications, your knowledge base or anything like that. So never be like a jerk about it. But you can use humor. Like, uh you know, this is my marketing girl, Jen. Typically in those situations, I will shake the other person's hand and make uncomfortable eye contact, like a really firm handshake. And I'll be like, hi, Jennifer, social media manager. 
it, it kind of levels the feeling. It kind of takes the piss. You know, you gotta, you gotta have like a British sense of humor about it. You gotta take the piss. You can't just be combative. Like you can't like crush the guy's knuckles and be like, I am woman, hear me roar, bow down. Like you gotta, you gotta go with the flow. Because part of shattering the glass ceiling is not falling down on your way up. If you act like an ass, you're just gonna, <laughs> you're gonna prove everybody right, right? Like, oh, yeah, she's young and just a little cray cray. <laughs> you're you're gonna kind of feed into that. So you have to pick your battles for one, and you have to find how you're gonna combat it. I use dry humor. And I'm a natural born troll, so I will make a firm handshake, uncomfortable eye contact, and then I am going to lower my voice like this. What happens with women is that when we get excited or we are on the spot, our voice goes up like six octaves. And that is just a biological thing. So I take a deep breath and I speak in my lower register and I make lots of eye contact. I am very authoritative. And I make sure that whoever's leaving that room never, ever uses their recall memory and calls me Jen, the marketing girl, ever again. I'm Jennifer, the social media manager. Know it, love it, be it. (laughs) Um, And again, I don't, I just shrug. I, I don't let it get to me. You have to have, in any industry, you have to have a thick skin. You are not pizza. You are not gonna make anybody happy. People have superiority complexes. Their parents didn't hug them enough. You will come up against all kinds of people. But you have to be secure enough in yourself to not let stupid stuff bother you. Now, if they're being outright pigs, then you call them out. Um, Other than that, go with the flow. You're going to meet all kinds. And, you know, there is in any business, there is a pecking order. Welcome to the real world. And I think that people don't realize that's the thing. So if you are right out of undergrad and you're a woman, the pecking order is even worse for you. Office politics are a thing. You have to earn trust usually about the, the five, sixth month point. If you have done consistent good work, you'll, you'll, you'll see yourself up on that, you know, food chain. But, and, and in no way should you ever shut up and take anything. But find subtle ways to kind of you know, let your worth and your value be known without being outright combative. If somebody keeps saying, oh, you're so young, I'm just, you just say, you don't know that. And then you keep it moving because they don't know if you're 24 or 44. They really don't know. And when you kind of hold up a mirror to that, it gives, it gives you back your power and makes them go, oh, maybe that was an off comment. Maybe I shouldn't be saying things like that. It's like, no, you shouldn't be saying things like that. Um, one of my favorite, favorite things. Now, not to stereotype, but I'm going to because stereotypes are true. Uh, <laughs> they just are. <laughs> I, you know, did a lot of work, do a lot of work in the South. And the South has a different, the South is probably about socially in business world about 15 years behind the rest of the country. And I walked into the bank and I was told, oh, so you're so-and-so's girl. And I looked around and I went, am I? I thought I was the social media manager <laughs> or the marketing director. I was the marketing director at the time. And I was, I did, that's just how I disarm it. I looked around and I'm like, oh, I wasn't aware I was anyone's girl, but thanks. Thanks for letting me know. And, you know, it's just kind of a teachable moment, but keep a good sense of humor, realize your worth, what you bring to the table 
never, ever feel like you're on your heels playing defense all the time. They will put you on your heels because, again, that's the insecurity. But just pivot and keep it moving. Thanks, Grimace. Okay, so our next note comes from the Hamburglar. <laughs> God, we're keeping it so professional. And the Hamburglar writes, Hi, Jen. Yo. I'm looking into going full-time into freelancing. What are your top tips for success? Woo, just going right off the high dive, aren't you? Um, that's great. Freelancing can be great if, and I hope before you've made this decision, you've looked within, taken an inventory, and made sure you are equipped for the freelance life. Um, because until you really figure out everything, it is going to be feast or famine. That goes with any commission-based lifestyle, whether you sell cars or you gig, like there is feast and famine until you establish yourself. So you have to be comfortable with that. I, for one, am not comfortable with that. I freelance, but I make sure I have a paycheck every week. Um, I like I like the best of both worlds. I like having my cake and eating it too. <laughs> I'm a brat. But um, so if you've already done that inventory, you're like, you know what, it's I can handle feast or famine. Or if you're going to keep a part-time, I highly recommend keeping a part-time job just so you have the security should you have a light month. It happens to everyone. That being said, the uh, number one thing I would recommend is do not lowball your price for anyone. Ask for the most and then add $100. Hear me out. A lot of times when you use the word freelance, you might as well just use the word desperate and people will try to take advantage, i.e. they will say, oh, well, I'll give you exposure if you do this kind of work for me. And at first you're like, oh yeah, I'm brand new. I want to get my name out there. Yeah, exposure is great. No, don't fall for it. Because not to quote Dr. Phil, but I'm gonna, you teach people how to treat you. The second you start doing free work, even if it's for your mama, you're going to keep doing free work. And you get into that desperation cycle where you are just churning out content for 20 bucks a piece of content. So I always say, find the closest adjacent profession to what you do. You didn't say in your email what you do. So let's use copywriting because copywriting is going to be a big part of this episode today. So you gave up your life at... I don't know, make up a job. You were working at Macy's and you were like assistant manager and you're like, I want to live my dream as a copywriter. Awesome. So what do copywriters on staff at mid-tier companies make? Well, they make anywhere from $20 an hour to $45 an hour. When you are freelancing, you should be charging $55 an hour because you are not a worker bee in a corporate environment and you're able to give more attention as a freelancer. So if I were a freelance copywriter, I would be like, oh, yeah, you can pay me $65 an hour for copywriting because they're going to go, yikes, but you're already establishing your value. And there are going to be people that come in under you and underbid 
And you need to be prepared for that. Well, I'm the best and you get what you pay for. Always lead with you get what you pay for. You can pay me $65 an hour or you can pay this schmo 20 bucks an hour. It also leaves room for negotiation that doesn't leave you high and dry. So if you start at $65 an hour and they like, hmm, well, we can get so-and-so. All right, well, you can move down a little bit and still you can get down to 45, which is the top end of that salary cap. And now you're still within your range. Now, friends and family, God love them. They love to take advantage. Oh, do they? (laughs) You are going to have some, I run into it all the time because I'll have friends who start businesses or friendly acquaintances more than friends because my friends would know better. My family would know better. I would charge my grandmother market. So, <laughs> um, friends and family, I would give the lower end of the corporate. So if you're copywriting for a friend, I would say, okay, well, my friends and family rate is $20 an hour. And they're going to go, whoa, you can't just do me a favor. And you have to say, you have to stick to your, your guns and say, I am doing you a favor. I normally charge $65 an hour to companies. You're getting a discount. Again, you're teaching them that your work is to be valued and respect. I see this happen a lot. I know we're using copywriting, but I see this a lot with creatives. Creatives don't value, a lot of creatives don't value their work enough to put a price tag on it that is competitive. They just want their work out there. There is still this starving artist commodity. Like it, it, I, I, I never understood it. One of my very best friends was an artist and she from minute one knew the worth of her art and jewelry and she didn't sell huge amounts, but she sold enough to, for it to have value. Um, she didn't give it away to friends and family. So it it's important, especially when you're a creative, that you direct them to your Etsy store. So if you do hand lettering or something and I mean, it's up to you to give away gifts, but if you have a friend getting married and they want invitations, you direct them right to your Etsy store and you make them pay market. It's a respect thing. And you're going to get some pushback and you're going to say, well, if you sold Audis, you wouldn't give me an Audi to drive for free. I'd have to pay at least cost. So my work is no different than a product and you have to stick to your guns. The other thing I highly, highly recommend, no matter what industry you're freelancing in, is to have an extensive digital portfolio and an extensive physical portfolio. So you walk in to every meeting. I don't care if you have to carry one of those ugly art portfolios with you to and fro, but people like to see results. So if you are going in there and you are asking for the high end of market of $65 an hour, you had better have 8 by 10 laminated samples of your work ready to pass around the conference room or across the desk. When you answer the email or send your resume or your CV, you need to have a link to where your work is living on the internet. There are sites like Contently and Scribd where you can host all of your work. And that's across all industries. If you're an artist, you should have your portfolio physically and digitally hosted on one of those sites or if you have your own website. That is really the best way to convey value because I guarantee you the people that are coming in at $20 an hour don't have that because they're in the desperation cycle of freelancing. 
And I think finally, I fell into this trap. And it's so hard because the people out there in the industry who are like, quote, the motivational speakers, really, really promote the hustle 24 seven lifestyle, that until you make it, you should just keep running on that rat wheel, round and round and round on the hamster wheel until you exhaust yourself. I don't believe in that at all. I believe that you need two days off a week. I believe that you treat it like a business, like a nine to five. Um, There are going to be times where you have to belly up to the frog buffet and eat a ton of frogs. But there are also times where you need to rest and rejuvenate and close your laptop. At the end of the day, when you're on your sick bed saying goodbye to your loved ones, you're not going to sit there and go, God, I wish I would have sent one more email. No, it's ridiculous. If you are being smart about your time management, if you are being smart about your marketing and putting yourself out there, there's only so much you can do. It Again, you cannot get into the desperation cycle. Being in a feast and famine cycle until you dial it all in is going to be hard enough on you, especially if you're keeping a side job while you're starting up. So be kind to yourself. Always talk to yourself like you're your own best friend. If you saw your best friend burning the midnight oil, at, you know, burning the candle at both ends and just didn't have any quality of life, but their face and their laptop or phone, you would say something. You wouldn't be like, work harder, loser. You'd be like, no, how about you take a break and let's go get some coffee? You know, just kind of stepping back. It also gives you perspective and kind of takes you out of your own head because we as human beings tend to just hyper-focus on what's not working. And that way, if you take a couple days off, you can just kind of breathe, get out in the world. It's very isolating at first when you start any kind of business or go into freelancing because you are your own product. And just take a break. (laughs) Gary Vaynerchuk can run around New York City at 1.30 in the morning working hard because he came into money from his parents. I think people forget that aspect when they look at Gary Vaynerchuk because He is somewhat self-made, but he inherited a family business and he was very smart with what he did. But this whole hustle 24-7 is his brand. So he has to put that out there. And you all, I'm a big, big, big proponent of quality of life. On the other side of that, if an opportunity pays you in things other than income, but you get a trade-off of quality of life, benefits, or perks, take that into consideration as well. It is okay to maybe make less than market if the trade-off is you have the freedom to live a life. You don't have to worry if you know something comes up and you have to go take care of a sick kid or you, you like to travel and take vacation. Those are trade-offs. So you also have to decide like, okay, What's my, what's my barometer of trade-offs here? Do they have a really great lounge you can work in and are lunches comped or is it commute, the commute so fantastic you won't be spending any gas money? There are trade-offs there as well. If it's a business, if it's a casual work environment, you're not going to have to buy work clothes. There's a lot of trade-offs there involved as well. Do they provide you with a laptop, technology? Things like that also matter as far as salary goes as well. So take everything into consideration. Just make sure that you are, it's going to suck. (laughs) I don't think anybody looks back when they first start up working for themselves in any capacity and go, you know what? That was fantastic. That first year, riveting, really just kind of built. No, everybody will tell you that first year, they weren't sure they were going to make it. 
Like, but it would, but it, you know, like I said, anything good takes 18 to 24 months of continuous hard work to start paying off anything you do, whether it is a particular savings goal you have, whether it is a particular fitness health goal, anything that is worth having will take 18 to 24 months of consistent hard work to show results. Same thing goes with freelance. It will be feast or famine for 18 to 24 months. Accept it. One of uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about myself because humans love to talk about themselves, especially self-important humans like myself. I went through this at a very young age. So I was a college cheerleader, but I'm from a town where you are a big fish in a little pond, so to speak. And you have this big fish, little pond attitude. I have, I mean, I still have a swagger, but I had a swagger (laughs) when I started college cheerleading. I was like, look at me. I have made it blah, blah. So you have to go, have any of you guys watched cheer on Netflix? It is very accurate. So the first thing you do when you go to college cheerleading is you go to college cheerleading camp. And at this cheerleading camp, I was very, very humbled because here I am looking all of 12 years old, corn-fed Midwestern girl, and there are beautifully chiseled, tan, gorgeous men and women (laughs) doing incredible things. I just, just a bumpkin. And I was sore. My feet were bleeding. I had hit my head at least a few times. I was never going to learn the Notre Dame fight song. Like I was just tragic. I mean, I was just tragic. And this was before like cell phones. Um, and so we were staying at the dorms and I, every day I would go to the end of the hallway and I'd call my grandmother and I'm like, I can't do it. Worse. And, and she would say, learn to love it. And she'd hang up. And then I would limp down the next day, limp down and be like, learn to love it. Stop calling. <laughs> so, and then every day she would just kept, keep saying, you have your choices are quit or learn to love it. So you kind of have, that's always been a mantra for me. Learn to love it. It sucks, but you got, there's no way out. You either quit or you tough it out. And there's, you know, learn to love it. You're going to have to learn the feast and famine cycle. You're going to have to learn establishing your value. You're going to have to learn to love everything that comes with it, knowing it'll pay off. So thank you, Hamburglar. What a great question. If you guys want to send me something for the mailbag and make me feel famous, go ahead and email me at brandmedia79 at gmail.com. Okay, so this week I taught classes about the riveting subject of copywriting. Nobody falls asleep faster than when I start talking about copywriting. Copywriting is the most unglamorous part of marketing and promoting your brand. Everybody in every industry has to master the art of copywriting. Now, people don't understand what copywriting is. Either they dismiss it as something their business doesn't need, or they overthink it and think that they have to write war and peace. And do they have the skills of a Tolstoy? No, you don't have to do either one of those things. Copywriting is the copy on your website, the copy on all of your marketing materials, the copy on all of your ads, the copy on all of your social media. That is copywriting. It is simple. Don't overthink it. Uh, Write exactly as you speak and you're going to be fine. The 
average newspaper and magazine in America writes to a sixth to ninth grade level. Most Americans read casually at a fifth grade level. Those are statistics. So you really don't have to be a wordsmith to be a proficient copywriter. And this is a conversation you have to have. This is the inventory we were talking about last week. Is writing something very difficult for you to do? I have trouble doing things that I would rather cut off my arm and farm out than do myself. <laughs> there are just some things I, I hate doing. Um, and I, it would be foolish of me to take on those tasks because I'm terrible at them and they're just going to look forced. So if you really struggle with writing and simple sentence structure, it doesn't mean you're an idiot or you're dumb or you're too old or you can't do it. It just means it's not one of your strengths. Um, typically, copywriters are not people-pleasing or people-people. <laughs> they tend to be introverted. So if you are an extrovert and you're really good at talking with people, it might do you some good to hire a copywriter to handle all of that for you because they are you know, they're good at copywriting because they're good at conveying language on in written form. Not everybody is. Uh, and, and so you have to play to your strengths. And if, if this is going to be something you wring your hands over every single day, or you stare at a blank screen, farm it out. I mean, really that we were just talking about rates, really that $20 an hour might just be worth it. It's always better. Remember what I said? It's always better to be consistent at a low level than have peaks and valleys. So if you want to have a consistent presence over the 18, the next 18 and 24 months, you really have to decide if this is because copywriting is something you're going to do each and every single day. Even something as simple as sharing a magazine article on Facebook, you have to write the caption and you have to convey uh, value. You have to say something. You have to capture your audience. So let's talk about copywriting as in a selling tool. So on social media, on the internet, no matter where you are, you have three seconds to either capture someone's attention or lose someone's attention. We say in marketing, you have to stop the scroll. So think of your phone. 80% of your digital marketing is going to happen on a mobile platform. The phones we use now are more powerful than the computers that put a man on the moon. All of our lives are happening on our phones. We are spending 20% more time on a phone or a mobile device than we are on a desktop or a laptop. Desktop is becoming almost completely obsolete. So you really need to market to the people who are sitting there scrolling their phones. The peak time of day people scroll their phones are 2 to 3 p.m. because you have people picking up children from school and this is the after lunch lag in the office. So your best marketing, your best copywriting needs to hit it's between 2 and 3 o'clock in the afternoon and on, at 9 a.m. Sunday morning because our phones have replaced our Sunday paper. Now, that being said, there's my squeaky chair, my co-host. Uh, that being said, you need to understand marketing silos. So we talked briefly last week about how, you know, 70 to 80 percent of your audience is going to either be on Facebook or it's going to be on Instagram. On Facebook, 
you are going to have more of your baby boomer audience and you're going to have less of younger millennials. Most of your Facebook audience are going to be elder millennials, generation X, and younger boomers. So you're talking ages 30 to 58-ish. Now, older millennials are turning 40 this year. Younger millennials are turning 18. Generation X, the youngest generation X are turning 40. So a lot of times we've, we view millennials as being very young, whereas they're not. They're in five years, by 2025, millennials are going to have more of the marketing power, the purchasing power of the marketplace than anyone. Now, purchasing power isn't necessarily purchasing ability, <laughs> as you find in some luxury, mostly um, mom and dad who are older Gen X and younger boomers are the seed money for a lot of luxury items or homes or cars for millennials. Millennials are the ones that have been helicopter parented and do not typically leave home until they are 28 years old, uh, whereas most of Generation X on average own their own home at 25. So we're dealing with a shift in life skills. I hate the word adulting. They're still adults, but they have been raised to feel like their opinion matters just as much as everyone's. Uh, they are the generation that everybody got a trophy and they are very attached to their parents until their mid to late 20s. Mom and dad still go to doctor appointments with them. They also are the only the first generation that has had their entire digital footprint made for them from the moment of their birth. Well, what does that mean? Well, most of us when we most of us didn't get on the internet until we were in our 20s. In a recreational way. We were using Netscape and dial-up internet in the late 90s, but that was for more research purposes. We didn't start using the internet as a social tool until the early aughts after Y2K. So most of us were adults, if not married, by then. So we had our digital footprint basically start out of college in our early 20s. This generation coming up has had every single moment of their life documented on the internet since birth. They don't know a life without high-speed internet and mobile phones. They don't know a life beyond Facebook because they were born into it. And... This is another learning curve. They haven't had to acquire. I mean, just by virtue of technology alone, we can't get mad at millennials because they haven't had the need to acquire a certain set of life skills that we had to. Perfect example is that when I got my driver's license, I had sat my parents were sadists. And most of our parents were sadists. A lot of our, us had immigrant parents who came from the old world and used old world discipline. A lot of our parents were either third or fourth generation, or you know, we our parents took a tough line with us. Even the nicest of our parents took a tough line with us, which is why we were independent at such a young age. My my stepfather would not let me get my driver's license until I could change a tire in the dark under 20 minutes and I could jump a battery in the pitch black in under 15 minutes. Um, it was like, it was like boot camp. I had, uh, he had a stopwatch. He, <laughs> he, I was not allowed to take that test until I could do all of those things. 
Why did I have to do all of those things? Because I didn't have a cell phone. And if I were on a dark road in the middle of the night coming home, I, you know, you didn't want that guy to pull over and help you. I couldn't just call AAA. It was either walk to a payphone or sit there and wait for potentially a predator to come murder me. I don't know. My parents were afraid of everything. Rightfully so. <laughs> now, I have a daughter that's driving this year. I wouldn't even think to teach her how to, I mean, she's obviously going to know how to jump a battery and change a tire, but I would never sit there in the pitch black making her take the tire on and off the car and jump it because she has an app on her phone and AAA will be there in 15 minutes. So there's no reason for her to have that life skill at the level I had to have it. So instead of looking down on the millennial generation and calling them snowflakes and, and calling them, you know, very fragile and we have to molly coddle them. Um, technology has made, we always want our gen next generation to be better than us, right? Well, we were helicopter parents and we were softer than our generation of parents. And we were very, we believed in attachment parenting and this is the product of that. So while they are going to be very savvy and they live most of their life online, there is going to be kind of a shift in their purchasing power, which is why, as we talked about in the first episode, these marketing silos are breaking down. In the early part of the 2010s, we really focused on millennials. We thought they were the buyers, you know, but it turned out while they had the power of the marketplace, to this day, they are still controlling every bit of marketing out there. They don't have, the bank is still mom and dad. So this is why we're seeing a pendulum shift back into more traditional marketing because we have to get the bank of mom and dad involved. So this is where the copywriting starts. You have to kind of make a sandwich for your product. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of compliment sandwiches when you have to give somebody a, a criticism. You frame it in what's called a compliment sandwich. So you compliment, criticize, compliment so that you bookend it with nice things. You have to kind of make a sandwich out of your marketing. So if you have a product, you have to identify who you're, who you're marketing this to first. Are you marketing this to millennials, Gen X, or boomers? Who are you, if you're marketing to millennials, you better believe that you have your second part of your sandwich has to be something the boomers can get behind. And then your bottom sandwich will be up. Your bun of the sandwich, so to speak, will be for Generation X because you're not really marketing. If you get them, great, but you're not really marketing to them. So you have to know how to talk to them. Millennials need an emotional connection. They have been attachment parented. They have been <laughs> breastfed a long time. So they need to have an instant connection. They need, it, it, they need your product to feel special to them instantly. Um, and it has to make them feel special. It also has to, they really care what other people think. It also has to look good. It has to be aspirational. Aspirational stuff is kind of their, their uh, pulse point. Generation X will out-research you. Those are the obnoxious, this is why they're called Karens. Those are the Karens, <laughs> you know, can I speak to the manager? Um, those are the ones that will show up to every presentation with a binder of research as thick as an Encyclopedia Britannica volume. Um, we will pull records. We will go through consumer reports. We will pull, 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 pull. Whereas baby boomers are bottom line driven. What's this going to cost me? They're tire kickers. They want availability from you. 
So the way you do your copywriting and stop the scroll is you identify, first of all, market research, who are you talking to? And then you use things like emojis, all caps. That will stop the scroll. Humans are lazy. Humans are visual. The emoji conveys the message so much faster than you spelling it out for them. It's human nature. For those of us who are really attached to the art of the English language, it makes us itch. I get a hive rash every time I have to use emojis in copywriting. But if your goal is to stop the scroll, the emojis and the all caps will do that. Then just make sure you're, you have something to say in those pulse points for who you're talking to. Now, don't write a book on social media. <laughs> your pitch should be two, three, four sentences at the most, and then your call to action. The call to action is what you want this consumer to do with this amount of information. So your call to action needs to be two things. One, you need to have a call or text number for those people who prefer a human interaction. These are going to be your older generation. Um, there's just an inherent mistrust of the internet because Big Brother is watching. That's not ageist. That's just market research has shown that people over 55 have an inherent distrust of the internet because they feel big, like Russia's going to get their birthday and rob them. Um, so to overcome that, having the call text option is fundamental. Even if it is a Google voice number, you got to use it. The second call to action needs to be driving business to your website. Um, that's it. You shouldn't have email me at or blah, blah. It should just be call, visit. Call me at 708thehookpodcast or visit me at thehookpodcast.com. Easy. So copywriting is something that is very important and something you should look into and make sure you're cognizant of it every time you're putting a message out there. Um, everything should be cohesive on message, on brand. You can't have all sorts of different messages going on there. This is where you have to kind of, again, look within, look at your marketing plan, make sure everything you're putting out there copywriting-wise matches with your mission statement. This is especially hard if you are the marketing girl. <laughs> For my marketing girls in the game, I'm sorry, social media managers, director of marketing. Um, if you are, you have to find that third, and a lot of you that are doing this on your own, if you're not like, if you're not the brand, say you're doing, you run a garage and you do auto repair, you yourself are not the brand, but your auto repair business is the brand. So where if you're all, say it's like four of y'all doing an auto repair business and you're all running the social media. Bob has a really goofy, dry sense of humor and he's putting out hilarious, dank memes. But, you know, Susie is, you know, keeping it really professional and talking about cars. And then you've got Tim who's just putting up cat videos. Like it's not cohesive. It's not meeting the mission statement. So if you're working in a team of people, you have to make sure the voice is consistent. If you are that person, you need to make sure that the voice is staying, is not so personal. It can't just be you. Um, you have to kind of make it a third person version of you. But everything is copywriting, even if you don't think it is. And if it, 
some great things about copywriting is on your website, it's a really great way. This is where you, you save the novels for your website. You always want to show, don't tell. So when you're teasing your website, you, you just give them enough information to make them click over the website and get the full story. You don't want to write a novel on Facebook because first of all, they're going to, people are lazy. After the fourth sentence, they're going to dip. <laughs> they're buy. Um, but if you give that, so if we're talking about this auto uh, repair business, if you're putting up like a sweet hoopty, you, you tricked out, it's after got all, it's murdered out, it's aftermarket, it's got some sweet kicks on it. And you tease a few sentences and then you say, if this is down, if you're down for this, call me at, or visit us at, and you, now they're going to click through and they're going to see all of the other cars you've done. And they're going to see all of the other products you have out there. That is why it is so, so important to have a website that you are driving traffic to and that your copyright is cohesive across all mediums, email newsletters, uh, print and marketing, uh, if you're doing terrestrial, that, that message, that voice, the copywriting has to be completely consistent and cohesive across all channels. So copywriting is important, y'all. I know it's boring. A lot of the stuff that makes us great is really boring. Don't you wish, like, think of your day-to-day -day life. Think of, like, all of the minutiae. I always, in my classes this week, you know, I get complimented a lot. Like, oh, you do so much. You're, you know, you're always so organized. You're on top of things. Like, yeah, I'm like a duck. <laughs> I look cool as a cucumber above the surface. Like, I'm just a duck, just out here cruising on the, and underneath. I'm paddling like mad. You have no idea how hard I work. <laughs> and think of how unglamorous your day-to-day -day life is. But people only see the highlight reel. I mean, isn't that what we have Facebook for? Like, if you knew how many, you know, times I have to pick up dog poop every single day, you see my beautiful dogs on Instagram, like, oh my God, the Huskies, they're so beautiful. And it's like, do you understand how much work goes into these stupid dogs? <laughs> the same thing with, oh, Jen, you just, you have so many fingers. And it's like, do you understand that I have four paper planners just to keep my life together? <laughs> because I haven't figured out how to make a digital calendar work for me. And I don't have the time to sit down and figure it out. So four notebooks it is. Uh, and yeah, you just have to, you know, whatever you see somebody like looking great after a, a huge weight loss, you like, you don't understand how much cauliflower I had to eat for that to happen. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Now let's celebrate. But no, a lot of cauliflower pain and suffering went into that. So just remember that it's, it's what you make of it. Learn to love it. Copywriting is boring. It's tedious, but you got to learn to love it because that's when it all pays off. It all comes together and you're taking a great vacation two weeks out of the year. And that's what it's about, right? You work hard to play hard. At least I hope so. Nobody should be a workaholic. Remember, bad attitudes are your making. 99% of your adult life is voluntary. It really is. Just <laughs> like I never understand people with bad attitudes. I always like you don't have to be here. I mean, you have to be here if you want a car and a house, but you don't have to be here. <laughs> Why are you infecting the whole place with your bad attitude when you can just go do something different? Like you can't just quit your job today and go do something different tomorrow, but like you could work towards not being a miserable cow. <laughs> you know, you can you know, everything's voluntary. There's no reason to suffer unless you like suffering. So anyway, this weekend we have the Super Bowl and I have a little game I want you guys to play. Now that you've been listening about marketing for a whole three hours now, 
and you've been, you know, you, you have a different set of eyes, watch commercials and watch who they're marketing to. And especially the Super Bowl commercials, because they're spending five plus million dollars to market to a specific demographic. And think of all of the demographics that are represented in the Super Bowl. It's probably the best teachable moment in marketing I can give you. I will give you an example. So one of uh, the sporting events of the year this year just happened this weekend. It was the United States Figure Skating Association National Championships. I was a figure skater for 20 plus years, and I have been to this national championships a gazillion times. And... I noticed the marketing. So figure skating since the Tanya and Nancy days of the early 90s has really lost a lot of viewership um, for various reasons. One of my dream jobs, if you know anyone, is to take over both ice figure and roller figure skating's marketing because they're, they're losing. They're not driving any new, fresh eyes to the product because they're stuck in the nostalgia period, which is fine. But... Every single piece of their marketing was marketing to baby boomers, which they have decided are their bread and butter and paying their bills because those are the ones through their market research have found that they are the ones watching skating. So I was watching a lot of consumer cellular commercials and, um, we'll stick with, I can't remember the name. I don't want to misspeak the riverboat cruises. I forget what they see the marketing so bad. I don't remember their name, but consumer cellular really, really was a great example of copywriting to your audience. So consumer cellular is a, um, cellular company that, you know, markets to the baby boomer and older demographic because it's pay as you go. And a lot of times they're not using their phones as much as we do. And there's no need for them to have an unlimited data package. Also, the phones are simpler to use. This is where you're going to get your flip phones, your very basic smartphones. It's a good product. But in the way they were marketing the commercial, the one commercial they showed a dozen times an hour was where these three people at a dog park and they were talking about how many times they send pictures of their dogs to their children and their grandchildren. And it was coming from a place of fear of missing out. FOMO is the biggest marketing tool you have. If you can make someone feel like they're missing out, they're going to buy your product. So the FOMO in this copywriting was your grandchildren aren't seeing pictures of your dog. <laughs> it sounds ridiculous. It sounds simple. But it was like, oh, I could be sharing my life with my grandchildren and I'm not in touch with them as much as I could be if I had this phone and this service and it's affordable. Like, what did I just say about baby boomers? How much is it? They are not going to pay $120 a month for an unlimited data play. That seems exorbitant to them because their landline has been $19 a month since the Nixon administration. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> they are very value-based and that's great. So the marketing on this said, Oh, you can get everything in the world and it's not going to cost you a ton of money. And then it was like, oh, ding, 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 light bulbs. And then comes in the very authoritative male booming voice because they are still, you know, authoritative is what they respond to. And they were showing things like 
JD Power and Associates, like a, like a JD Power Award was is like the Oscars. I mean, that means it's good, it's solid, it's reliable. So they were hitting all of the pulse points that a baby boomer cares about. Um, FOMO, price, authoritative, this is value because baby boomers are generationally brand loyal. So they all have AT&T phone service because Ma Bell <laughs> was the phone service and they just stayed with them. So very few have like Xfinity or anything other than AT&T because that's generationally what they had. So the consumer cellular is like, I know it's on AT&T, but we have all of these awards. Whereas JD, like those of us in the know, know JD Power and Associates is a totally bought award. You throw a million dollars at them, you get a JD Power and Associate award. Like it's not even an objective <laughs> award, but it it's prestigious to that generation and that matters to them. So it was interesting to see Consumer Cellular hit every single baby boomer marketing point and was just blatant about it. So watch commercials this week and see how, first of all, they're, they're getting you to not change the channel because that's when we, whenever a commercial comes on, we start looking at our phones or we change the channel. Um, make, watch them this week. See how, you'll, you will see how they get your attention and who they're marketing to. If they're getting like a, an emotional response, you're like, oh, this is something for a millennial. If they're hitting you with facts, 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 that's a Generation X ad. If they're hitting you with how much is this going to cost me, that's a baby boomer ad. And they all have FOMO. So see if, again, FOMO is fear of missing out. So see in these ads where they're hitting your FOMO buttons. What are you missing out on? All right. I've talked enough for this week. Learn to love it. Get out there and eat all those frogs and make it a good week. I'll talk to you guys next week. Take care.